This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Sue Maslin is one of Australia's best-known producers in film and television and is the executive producer of the new documentary Jill Bilcock, Dancing the Invisible, about the Australian film editor Jill Bilcock, her life and her career and her art. Sue, to begin with, is editing an art or is it uh, a technical skill? It's a little bit of both, actually, but a truly great editor like Jill Bilcock, it is very much uh, about the artistry of not necessarily working with your dreams and desires and hopes for what you might end up uh, filming and what is in the script, but what you actually actually brought to the edit room and filmed and then the magic of creating the story with what you actually have. So in part... It's you know, it's incredible artistry, but it's also a craft because you're having to understand the skills to work with with what you actually have um, before you and have all of that um, all of that knowledge really in order to then create the actual film in the edit room. One of the things that fascinates me about the the, the craft and the work and the artistry of a great editor is the way they they really can bring something to life. I've read accounts of uh, filmmaking and television making where uh, the the director and the and the scriptwriter and the producer will be sitting down watching a rough edit and there's no life to it because it's just been cut kind of in the wrong way, the wrong tone. It's emphasis the wrong emotions and so forth. And so then a new editor can come in and suddenly make magic out of what was previously lifeless. It's an interesting thing because you spend years as a filmmaker and, uh, you know, as a producer and also as a director uh, in trying to assemble how you'll, you'll bring this uh, this story to life and you'll look at the rushes, uh, you know, being the, you know, the daily uh, takes from filming but you actually don't know whether you've got a film or not until the editor uh, presents it back to you. And it's it's this overwhelming feeling. I mean, I, I know myself, having sat through and seen, because uh, I've worked with Jill now on a couple of films, seen what she's able to... Um, to, to bring in that, that first assembly. It's incredibly emotional because you know then whether you, you actually got a movie or not. It reinforces how collaborative filmmaking is. We hear so much about the auteur or the, the great director and so forth and their vision, but without a great editor, uh, a great director is, really has very little to present. Indeed. And look, look. to be honest, Jill is the kind of go-to uh, editor in, in Australia, you know, she and internationally. She, she is legendary, has worked on a number of iconic films and we make the point in our documentary that if you look at, you know, the, the top all-time Australian favourite and highest-grossing films, they, they include films like Muriel's Wedding, Strictly Ballroom, The, the Dressmaker, um, Romeo and Juliet. Um, Jill edited those all of those iconic movies. And this is not a coincidence. This is something that she has this gift of being able to, in the first instance, often work with first-time directors, and that takes an incredible amount of risk-taking on her part to recognise in them that they've got something unique and they've got the passion to tell a truly original and exciting story. And she takes that risk every time and she ends up making these hit movies. Well, I'm sure many people listening, for example, would be familiar with even some of the earlier films she'd worked on, Strike Bound and Dogs in Space, for example, Richard Lowenstein's first uh, earlier films, Anna Kokonos's Head 
on and so forth. So as you say, kind of people who are making their mark in in the world of cinema, but have also made really significant films. And more recently, you've mentioned The Dressmaker, uh, also Red Dog from 2011. It's about creative risk and creative risk taking, and that's something that unfortunately is a real casualty in the you know the contemporary film scene where we you know we live in a world now it's all about mitigating risk and quite frankly you know I despair at times because I see the Australian screen industry and just think it's the, you know the triumph of mediocrity most of the time but every now and then you get uh, people like you know Jill who are prepared to really go out on a limb and recognize when you know there's really truly distinct original new voices and often you know not fully supported early in their careers and then back back those voices she's fiercely protective of her directors and sometimes as a producer that's really really tough to work with but I respect it and she's usually right it's fascinating looking at the documentary because really uh, Jill was emerging as uh, an, a film editor at the same time the kind of the reborn Australian film industry was as well. She was part of the very first kind of uh, film training course out at Swinburne, for example. Yeah, look, when she started, you know, in the, in the late uh, 60s, she was only 15 years old when she went to, to Swinburne and she had no idea what she was doing. And, they, you know, all the, the, the students there, there was actually no Australian film industry at that time. But they uh, were expected to go on and have possibly careers in advertising or in you know, documentary filmmaking. There was a national filmmaking unit. But we're, you know, we're talking about a time where there was, there was just no uh, Australian support at that time for locally produced feature films. So, in fact... She teamed up with people like Fred Skepsey and uh, Brian Kavanagh and learnt, you know, and built up those those editing skills at the same time that uh, there was, you know, the nascent support for an industry that reflected our stories and our voices. And it finally came into being, you know, under the, uh, the Gorton government, actually, in 71. And from that point on, there's been, you know, bipartisan support for both governments, you know, Liberal and Labor have supported the Australian film industry and our, you know, right, really, to, to tell our own stories. So she was right there at the beginning. And, uh, and that's probably part of the reason she is a maverick. I find it astounding that she's still doing it all after all these years. And clearly from the film doing it with such joy as well because there's, there's a scene early in the film where uh, the, the comment is made that if an editor doesn't kind of bring warmth to the process then if they don't if they're not responding to the material they're editing and working on then something is missing from the equation and seeing her <laughs> laughing in, in delight at the performances in The Dressmaker as she's assembling the cuts. So yeah I think it's a love-hate relationship really it's, uh, it's not always joy in the edit room for the editor or anybody else uh, for Jill it's it's definitely a passion it's an obsession and she certainly gets you know a huge amount of uh, you know pleasure out of working with the the director so they it comes to the importance of the creative collaboration and she won't get involved in something unless she, she can find that relationship uh, and that trust uh, with, with the director, so that I think that's uh, you know where that the joy begins and possibly informs the kind of choices that she makes. But uh, yeah, don't for a minute think it's all fun and games in the edit room. <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> it's not. Now the film is written and directed by Axel Grigor, who's also co-edited it uh, together with Scott Walton. And I imagine for both Axel and Scott, that editing process must have been even more fraught than normal. You're editing a film about one of the world's great editors. 
Yes, that, that was that certainly added a, a, a bit of pressure. And um, to Jill's great credit, she chose not to look at any of the cuts until the uh, the film was completely finished and we premiered the film in uh, the Adelaide Film Festival last year, where it actually ended up winning the Audience Award, uh, the Greater Union Audience Award. But uh, the, the film really got started about four years ago when uh, Axel Grigor, who at the time was uh, teaching at Griffith University up in uh, Queensland and got Jill in to do a masterclass and was, you know, blown away obviously by, by Jill and um, the work that she'd done but just wondered why on earth nobody had told her story. And so she, I think she, at the beginning, thought that she was just going to be doing a, a short interview, you know, for a film that might have been made four years ago. And it, in fact, it ended up being quite a long saga. And I met um, Axel and Faramaz, who uh, worked with Axel in making this movie, when they also came to me and said, look, do you think we could just come and film, you know, a couple of scenes behind the scenes on The Dressmaker? I said, Sure. And anyway, for both Jill and I, it ended up becoming a labour of love and a four-year um, commitment, which uh, at the end of the day, Axel has just done the most superb job, I think, in you know bringing together not only Jill's story and the artistry of what she does, but also this portrait of um, you know the Melbourne filmmaking scene. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Sue Maslin, who's the executive producer of the new Australian documentary, Jill Bilcock, Dancing the Invisible. Uh, so is it perhaps one of the, the things that you hope this film will do is that it will make Jill kind of better known in, in her home country? Because in the film community in Australia and internationally, she's, she's obviously renowned, but her, her artistry is perhaps not recognised by the, the broader Australian public. Will this film change that? I think so. I think most people will have a, a, an idea now of uh, just the, the comp- contribution that, that she has made. Um, as not only as an artist but as a mentor and a key player in the Australian screen industry. And it's great to see Jill acknowledged uh, nationally. So she was recently awarded or recognised in the Australia Days honours list this year, which was fantastic. And she's had a number of Lifetime Achievement Awards in, awards in recent years. But don't for a minute think that that's because she's towards the end of her career. Right now she's editing two movies. <laughs> she's working on Rachel Griffith's Ride Like a Girl and as well as um, teaming up again with Richard Lowenstein after all of these years oh, on fantastic. the Michael Hutchins documentary. Fantastic. I'll have to keep an eye out for that one especially. Jill Bilcock, Dancing the Invisible, is screening at Cinema Nova from Thursday the 5th of July. There's a Q and a with Jill on uh, Thursday the 5th at 6.15pm. If you're streaming Triple R from elsewhere in the country, it's also screening in Sydney uh, at the Dandy Newtown the Golden Age Cinema in Brisbane, Canberra, Perth, Adelaide and even in Devonport down in Tasmania. Well, it's astounding because when, you know, because we distribute this movie as well and I've had cinemas now ringing me and saying, what is it, we want to see this movie, you know, we've heard about it, we love it and... Everybody who sees this film, I think, is just affected by Jill's wit, her irreverence, her wisdom, and uh, and also, you know, Kate Blanchett, Baz Luhrmann, uh, Sue Brooks, Chris Stender. So many people are there, sort of talking about this this magic that we call uh, cinema in celebration of Jill. I definitely, from the taste I've had of the film, I haven't watched the entire documentary yet. I always like to sit with an audience to watch a film properly. Watching a Vimeo link at home gives me a taste of the film, but there's nothing like being amongst people and feeling their response to the film as well. 
Well, this is why we do cinema. You know, this is why some of us still are really, really committed to that idea of spectacle and emotion on the big screen, uh, but shared, you know, in, a, in a, a group, that that bringing together of the tribe in watching cinema. Uh, this is why we do it. And so I hope, uh, Richard, you'll come along and you'll see it actually with an audience because it's very funny as well as uh, you know, being uh, you know, quite informative. I'm joined in the studio now uh, by Justin Shoulder, who's got a, a one-person performance called Carrion on Now at Arts House in North Melbourne. It opened last night. Justin, I'm always relieved to see performers <laughs> come in after an opening night. Oh, totally. There's always I, that little voice at the back of my mind going, what if they just sleep through the alarm because they were out celebrating all night? But how did your opening night go? Oh, really good, actually. Um, I think the first one's always kind of intimidating for me because... Uh, you do all these rehearsals like separate to the space and then suddenly you've got this incredible amount of energy coming from the audience. Um, there were, a, I think, opening... The first nights are always a bit quiet because it's like industry and stuff. So I'm excited about the season and um, lots of people from the community coming tonight. So it'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, I, it's weird. I don't like going to opening nights myself because mm. I know that I'm not getting the same kind of... A, the audience are going to have a mm. very different response when they're paying punters and they're just interested totally. in seeing the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the performer on an opening night can somehow sometimes have that kind of a slightly heightened style mm. of performance and energy because, yeah, you, sure. all the pressure that is there. So Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely, definitely. So Carrion is uh, from having not seen uh, the work yet. Yep. It's an exploration of what it means to be human at a time yep. when humanity is destroying the planet yeah for sure i mean it's kind of like uh so i've got a club-based background and a, a lot of my early um practice was started in queer nightclubs in sydney um and i have a body of work called phasma hammer which is focused on uh imagined mythical creatures that come both from my queer lineage and also um, my filipino heritage as a kind of like syncretic form um and carrying is kind of like a science fiction epic that draws from very like uh um queer spectacle based language but also like um i think something really ancient so yeah it's it, it's it is like a kind of mix of like comedy and horror and um fantasy but also something very grounded in the kind of current political and environmental climate so now, the, the queer club scene has got a long and proud history mm. of giving birth to some really interesting performance oh, really... performances. So, uh, I mean, uh, Lee Bowery is one mm. of the, the first that springs to mind. Totally. And I know the Sydney club scene, like uh, events like Club Kooky and, mm. and so forth. I love that fact that uh, instead of just going to a club and seeing music or seeing a drag mm. show, the idea of alternative yep. performance yep. and art. How challenging has it been for you as a performer to grow your performance style from the mm. little maybe five minute slot you might do exactly. in, in a club to kind of a, a full production totally and I, I often talk about um i have a particular formula in the club which is the seven minute formula because it's like um you're having to draw an audience in who are in a particular and often inebriated state so <laughs> and there's a lot of like stimulation happening i i guess over the last six years I've really focused on that transition and moving into the theatre environment. And I actually think Carrion is probably my most um, finessed work in that space. Um, I work with a mentor, Victoria Hunt. Um, I've been kind of training with her for the last 10 years, but 
with a particular focus for the last um, three or four, um, with really focusing on the dramaturgy of my body and how to hold space and and thinking about duration. But I actually think the black box space is a really exciting place because you can really hold people and and draw people into a, a kind of greater narrative and. It's it's a it's challenging in a very different way for sure. Now, in terms of the narrative of mm. Carrie and uh, some of the the things I've read about it, mm. um, that idea of being post-human, but mm. also bringing in kind of aspects of what biomechanisms yep. and yep. and fusing uh, person, machine, and yep. more. Yeah, totally. Talk to us about for uh, mm. audiences who might be heading along tonight or in the next couple sure. of nights. What can they expect from the performance without giving too much away? Yeah, totally. I mean, I kind of play with all these different ideas of of the landscape in relation to myself so we, we start off with these very kind of like western romantic idyllic um relationships and these very kind of balletic forms and then it moves into these more um like post-human uh, simulations of nature and you kind of basically i use my body to move between these states of being human machine and animal and remixing it between all those forms kind of like a chimera so it's like um, very hybrid, uh, keep get pastiche kind of like remixing in each scene. It sounds like it sounds like a lot of different ideas, but it will make sense if you see it. <laughs> well, that's the skill of an artist is kind of can taking all those ideas and making totally. them into a, a coherent piece of work. Yeah, totally, totally. And to what degree does I mean you, you talked about movement a bit? And mm. uh, Victoria Hunt, I know, is one of the founding members of De Quincey Company, for mm. example. Mm. So with a strong kind of dance and choreographic totally. focus to her practice. Yeah. Um, would you is this more a dance work uh, than anything else, or would you say no? It's contemporary performance because it's bringing in mm. everything from movement and philosophy and environmental yep. issues, but also mask work. Yeah, and, totally. And more. Yeah, I don't know how to position it actually because there's also like a lot of puppetry and um, there's seen particular scenes where I'm working with really big objects and um, I mean for me it's probably my most dance kind of focus work but I try not to frame it in a particular way because actually I was very intimidating about intimidated about moving into this space because it's not like a, um, a natural space for me um, but a lot of people have been seeing it in the kind of dance realm, so okay. I don't mind. However, people see it. <laughs> so when you say it's not a natural space for you, what do you mm. mean? the the mm. The idea of focusing the work on a more dance aesthetic is not your space. Totally. Or? I mean, I think because my particular language that I've I've been used to working with is very like spectacle based and very like often like very costumed, or you you could in the past rarely see my human form. Whereas here, you're very much seeing like a very stripped back, um, pretty much just my raw body. And then I kind of build onto it. Um, and I'm working with transformation states that are focused just on my body and using my body as the transformation tool and then adding costumes as well. So it's kind of like a combination of all the tools that I've got at the moment. Yeah. Now, some of the imagery for the show is mm. pretty striking. So talk, uh, yeah. speaking of costumes and sure. so costumes and masks and, and that idea of transforming the body mm. into something other than human. Yep. What kind of... Are you working with other artists to, to make those elements or is that part of your practice as well? Totally. I mean, I, I've been collaborating for most of my practice with my partner, Matthew Steg, um, and he's the key uh, collaborator on that in this performance. Um, we've 
we work to create a set that keeps um it kind of like operates both as a kind of like backdrop and then it becomes different figures i don't want to give it too much away but um uh yeah he's a key collaborator as well as um the musician corinne um who plays the score live now, one of the the things we've talked about with uh, with Carrie, and which, uh, as we said, is on now at Arts House in North Melbourne until the thirtieth of June. Yes, it's tapping into notions of the destruction of the planet, the destruction mm. of the environment, and so forth. So there's some bleakness to it, but I understand sure. there's also some black humour as well to oh, balance totally. that out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, the I think I I, I didn't want to be kind of blindly optimistic about. Um, a particular position on um, human interference. But um, I think that uh, seeds of hope are really important for people to to move forward. And I'm very much about like creating a world for future generations. And I have kids in my life, so I'm always like really conscious of like what we're giving to them. So there's definitely a bleakness, but also humour and um, a sense of possibility. So... Yeah, and let's talk just for a moment about the title of the work, Carrion. Yeah, uh, is in, in some ways what, from everything you've said about the the aesthetics and the style and the ideas in the show and mm. the title itself, I, I I'm envisaging some kind of uh, post-industrial creature picking over the scraps of oh, what's left of the world that, and picking over that. the corpse and the bones of the planet. Totally, it's very much that, and it's kind of like I've always used this frame of these of myth as a kind of like because it's like both deeply connected to us but kind of separate so it's kind of like you know like science fiction you can relate to it but it's also kind of just there's a little bit of distance um in in many ways carrion is this figure that is inhabiting this place that um there's very little left and it's using whatever's left to survive so that's kind of essentially but i love the title it's very like metal I suspect there's going to be a very eager audience at Hamer Hall at Art Centre Melbourne to see The Origin of Love, the songs and stories of Hedwig, performed by John Cameron Mitchell, who joins us on the line now. John, good morning. Hi, good morning to you. So you're over here in Australia uh, presenting this uh, production, which is not only uh, in which you perform the songs from Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the the cult musical that you co-created, but uh, it's also uh, it's a cabaret presented with stories about the writing of the show and about your life. Uh, how did the uh, the premiere go over at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival? It was fantastic. We have an amazing uh, band, who many of whom did the original uh, production, you know, that toured Australia about 10 years ago. It was a big hit. And uh, I brought my backup singer, Amber Martin, who was a smash at the festival playing Janis Joplin. So it really was very emotional. I talked about how Hedwig fit into my life, how my family, my father being a general in Berlin, my mother being a Scottish artist, affected the creation of of Hedvig, how my babysitter, who was also a prostitute, became the model for Hedvig's look uh, in Junction City, Kansas, you know, in a trailer park, and how my collaborators and I worked over 10 years to create something that was, that is a, you know, it means a lot to 
not a lot, a ton of people, be, you know, the people who come who get tattoos, you know, it's like a very intense emotional relationship with Hedvig uh, fans, with me, with my composer, and it was a little fast. Now, when uh, I saw the stage production of uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch in Melbourne uh, with Iota performing in the title role, the fact that people yeah. were turning up to the theatre with uh, kind of uh, foam wigs to, uh, to, to demonstrate their love for Hedvig and the character, as you say, it's not necessarily a musical or a film which uh, is hugely known, but there is an enormous passion amongst those of us who know the, the stage production or, or know the film. When when you were first presenting the very earliest iterations of Hedvig as a character at the what the punk drag bar squeeze box back in what 1994, had you any idea of how deeply and uh, and for what a prolonged period this character would resonate with people? We had no idea. I mean, what we were just trying to do. I was coming from a very traditional acting Broadway point of view. Stephen Trask was coming from a kind of a queer punk point of view. And it it was, you know, a couple of years it was Kurt Cobain had just died, so there was this kind of explosion of a punk in the air and the connection of punk and queer coming together. You know, Little Richard after all was, you know, our original queen of rock and roll. Um Edvig came from the from Bowie, from Lou Reed, from Little Richard, from Iggy Pop and it was just reference. You know, remember Mark Ruffalo was at our first punk gig, you know, and it was just like actor friends came by, checked out this fun character that was very rough and ready. And I was using some of my Broadway tricks, you know, but also learning from incredible drag and trans performers at this club, Squeezebox. And suddenly we're off Broadway. We've got Madonna and Glenn Close and Lou Reed and Ted Bowie coming to the show every night, more than once, and it, it was just shocking. And a good lesson to follow your heart instead of follow what you think other people want. Follow what you want; it'll pay off in the end, if not monetarily, then emotionally, karmically. Now, which seems to have been uh, uh, something you've held true to throughout your career over, certainly over the last kind of decade or more, that you've, you've made some, to my mind, some, some fascinating films. I adore Short Bus, the, the 2006 film in which uh, you used kind of sex to explore emotion. Uh, uh, more recently, yes. uh, Rabbit Hole uh, with Nicole Kidman. Uh, and uh, most recently, an adaptation of a short story by the the fantasy and comic book writer Neil Gaiman, how to talk to girls at parties. When you're looking to make a film, whether it's uh, from existing material or, or creating something original, what do you look for in material? What's the spark that makes you think, this is the story I want to tell next? It usually has something to do with an outsider or a community of outsiders. It has something to do with healing, trauma of some kind. It has... The story has to be useful. Uh, other people do stories because they're exploring some inner demon or they're trying to make money or they're, you know, just trying to divert, which is fine. You know, entertainment is important and escapism is important these days. But I, I do feel kind of, maybe it's my Catholic side, I do feel a guilt if I'm killing myself for something that isn't going to last, isn't going to have some use 
for its audience, you know, some way, some hope, some spark of hope, some tool to help you move on in, in a, we think of as a kind of dark time right now where people, where fear and, and hatred seem to be the currency of the day. You know, it really does feel like the, the 30s. It's a difficult day for me because our, our swing justice uh, who helped allow my friends to have gay marriage, you know, to have, be able to keep their children, you know, uh, has just retired, you know, and Trump is probably going to, uh, put in someone who is hostile to, to, uh, these kind of rights. Um, and my parents are immigrants, you know, suddenly immigrants are, have caused all pain in the world. And it's, I, I get, I really feel like a guilt when I don't make something that is useful to promoting love. Now, obviously, audiences have a lot of love for the character of Hedvig uh, and the story of Hedvig and the Angry Inch and uh, the story of an internationally ignored song stylist. Um, There's a a lot of kind of heartbreak and pain in the production, but there's also um, a lot of... of, a lot of honesty and passion as well, which is one of the reasons that it resonates to me. And that the, the it's also about the quest for love as well as the, the exploration of art and why we make art. For Do you think that some audiences will be coming along to see this stage production, The Origin of Love, because they may not be familiar with the film or the character, but they're now familiar with the reputation, perhaps, that Hedvig has? I think that's true. I think about half of the audience in Adelaide when we did our first show didn't, you know, came because it was a headliner at the festival and didn't know much about Hedwig. But in the show, that doesn't, that is still, they still get the story. So it just kind of piqued their interest to see the actual film uh, and later production. So I try to make it open for all to understand. It's not just a connoisseur's uh, fan fest. You know, I talk about talk about you know the origin of love which was a 2500 year old greek myth by plato about how we were cut in half by the gods and we're seeking our other half and that is called love it's a myth that's lasted and resonated throughout the ages in every culture i talk about the christian gnostic gospel that gives the name to tommy gnosis the big rock star in my story and and how growing up catholic my my uh, interpretation of, of uh, the New Testament informs this, which is is about love. Um, so it's like it's kind of fascinating for anybody who's seen the show or or knows it really well. And we call our fans headheads, you know, after the Grateful Dead's deadheads, um, because they they're there, you know, for us. And I and I, I want to thank them. I'm also doing this trip partly to finance my mom's health care. She has Alzheimer's and we don't have a lot of health care in our country. So I thank my fans for being there for my mom. That's it, one of the things that I have to say as an Australian startles me when I heard that that's one of the reasons for the tour, that kind of here in Australia, yeah. universal health care. Uh, my mum uh, has uh, recently got over a, uh, a stomach cancer. And so, and there was oh, there was support for that from the, from the state, from the government. Uh, and so the idea of me having to put myself into hock or kind of go off to the other side of the world to do a tour to raise money for my mum's treatment, it, that, that startles me and frightens me, I have to say. So, it's insane. It's very frightening. I, don't, I feel like I want to stay here. You know, I, I just am so embarrassed 
by the priorities of our nation, which many of many of which values I believe in the uh, an idea of immigrants coming to create something new and something beautiful and you know queer rights kind of getting started you know well they got started in Germany but you know coming to fruition there you know the idea of justice which seems to be in short supply right now uh, came from immigrant you know cultures you know doing their own sins within you know some indigenous people but there's this idea of hope that America used to have um, and Hedwig is an immigrant you know she gets over the Berlin Wall by being forced into a sex reassignment uh, in the 80s to get over the, get out of communism and then it ends up kind of abandoned in the trailer park Build, re, rebuilds her life as Hedwig and this idea of self-invention is such a new world thing that I love, you know, and I'm touched when I when I think of people here being sending good wishes to my mom, uh, who's now fighting a cancer fight as well as Alzheimer's. Um, the military takes care of some of it, but the care is, you know, the help the caregivers are not, and that costs a lot of money to keep her, you know, keep her in in good state. Um, so I put I pulled the wig on for mom. Well, I think there'll be a lot of people in the audience looking forward to seeing you pull the wig on and more. Look, uh, uh, John Cameron Mitchell, there's a final question for you. I've Having uh, spoken to Iota about the, the performance of Hedwig and uh, heard accounts from other actors, it's said to be um, an emotionally and physically and psychically exhausting role to play. Uh, given that you created the character back in the early 90s, do you find Hedvig exhausting as well, or is Hedvig something that, uh, and a character that still gives you hope and life? I, I really do. When I, did re, when I took on the role again a couple of years ago at Broadway, uh, replacing you know, Patrick Harris, it was fun to replace myself, actually. It was very relaxing. I didn't have to do any press. Um, I had... I was overwhelmed with the, the, you know, my 53-year-old body getting back into the heels and doing the choreography. In fact, I ripped my knee out in the third week and had to do the rest of the leg brace. But Hedwig's story contained broken knees and, and all kinds of other ailments because she is a survivor. She's clinging to life with her press-on nails and putting those on slapping some makeup on and getting back out there. That's what this is about. It's about survival and reinvention. And uh, so whatever trail is doing the role, it's much easier than a lot of things. And I'm very grateful to be again. John Cameron Mitchell is performing The Origins of Love, the songs and stories of Hedvig at Hamer Hall, Arts Centre Melbourne, on Tuesday the 10th of July at 8pm. Uh, you can uh, book by calling 1300 723 038. That's 1300 723 038. Or jump online, artscentremelbourne.com.au. I'll be in the audience and very much looking forward to the performance. John Cameron Mitchell, Aww. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your really sweet questions. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.